Uh, why don't you flip with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at, um, we're actually going to go to First Peter today, but we're going to start out just giving some context uh, to why we're here today. Ephesians chapter 5. This is, um, this is week 13 of a family series, and um, we probably got two to three more weeks left in it. Um, I'm ambitious, but let's be honest, it's probably more on the three side. Um, and I encourage you as we read this, you know, some of you are new here. Some of you have little to no church background. Some of you have little to no biblical background. And I encourage you as we come before the Bible that is so pure and so true and so right to maybe just let go of everything you ever knew from your worldview that has come from outside of the Bible. You know, as we come here to this church, we want to come and we want to bow our hearts before the authority of the Bible. That was what the men's retreat last weekend was all about as we studied 176 verses of Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. That he is right in here. He is true in here. And we see that he is, his ways are yes and amen. I really encourage you people, you folks, to, to begin just really fostering a biblical worldview in this era that we live in. It is so crazy out there. It is so crazy. And we are bombarded by a billion different news sources and media outlets and, and liberal and conservative. And it is just, you know, we're drowning in it. And we need to just come back and say, Lord, you, you see the end from the beginning. You know everything. Let's just pull back to the God of history and just say, what are you doing here? And, and what are your ways and what is your counsel in this? I really encourage you. There's a great podcast out there called The Briefing by uh, Dr. Al Mohler from the Southern Baptist Seminary. And he does a great job taking the news headlines from USA Today, from everything, and just bringing a biblical gospel-centered worldview to it. It's refreshing. But we want to do that today in week 13 of a family series because we could argue all day on like, well, I think that this is how long a couple should be married if they're in the midst of conflict. And I think this is how you should discipline your children. And I think this is how a wife should respond to her husband. And I think this is what roles should be in a home. And no offense but I don't care what you think. And you shouldn't care what I think. Every one of us in this room should just come humbly and say, what do you think, God? What are your ways? His promises are true. And we can say yes to them and we can say amen. Amen? amen. All right, let's stand together. Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna start with verse 18 and then we're gonna hop to verse 22 because we want, to remain, uh, we want to remain in the gospel as we study this. So uh, Ephesians 5.18, and it says, I got talking, I didn't even flip there. So, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so this is, this is our setup kind of for, and wives and, and husbands and kids, it's, it's not, hey, just do your best and forget the rest and try really hard. It's, hey, don't go get drunk because there's really not hope there. Go to the Holy Spirit. Receive power from him. And if you've received power from him, this is what it's going to look like in your life. And then we go to verse 22. I guess I was there. I was just looking at the Philippians next page. So if you're full of the Spirit, wives, you'll submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands whenever they want. No, oh, my bad. Started reading my own opinion into it. That probably wouldn't have been my opinion. But okay, in everything, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, 
that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. (coughs) For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. This is, this is the, the text for our day. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So last week we we finished up Ephesians chapter 5 looking at this wonderful mystery that the picture, and I think it's in, it's in, in Greek, it's mega mysterion, right? It was a mega mystery, okay? It's the mystery of marriage being a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. And we really dove into that last week. And later on that day and, and the next couple days, I was like, man, but I really feel like we missed verse 33 that says, Nevertheless, even though there is a mystery, even though I'm really talking about Jesus Christ and the church, still let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so it was so great last week because we we got on the gospel. We got on that it's a picture of Jesus and the church. And it was just so beautiful and so refreshing. And yet even Paul goes... Yeah, but also don't forget to love your wives. And also don't forget to respect your husband. And so I wanted to look at just another incredible text in the scripture about wives and husbands. And it's kind of going to be the wrap up. It's the cherry on top for the wives, the cherry on top for the husbands. And um, ambition would say we'll be able to cover both roles today. We'll see if like God does one of his miracle things and like stops time in its place. Sometimes, it, look, they haven't even started the clock back there for me. It's still on 45 minutes. Maybe God will do that. Oh, he just started it. Okay, okay. So, so we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 probably through 6. I'll be fair, I'll be fair. You know, if our Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work at all. Nobody knows this better than me and many of you. Man, it is a daily clinging to the mercy seat for me. Just a man talking to men. Just a human talking to humans. We have got to cling to the cross and we've got to hang out at the empty tomb where there's resurrection power for us. Just like in Ephesians, when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, 
It's, it's all in light of what Jesus has done for us. It's all Peter setting up the gospel as he gets to chapter 3 when he speaks these very practical things at the end of chapter 2 to, to children. He speaks them to, to slaves or to servants or to employees. He speaks it to employers and bosses. And then he speaks this very practical word, six verses to wives and one verse to husbands, probably no coincidence, but hey, I mean, you got to trust the Holy Spirit as he was inspiring the word there. No, I'm kidding. Um, guys got theirs in Ephesians, I'm telling you. But really, Paul and Peter would both say, if you really know it, you'll show it. If you really know it, you'll show it. If you really believe, you'll obey. This will be true in in our civilian life, in our church life, in our employment, in our home lives, when we're all by ourselves. It's been said that when you're by yourself, that's when true character shows. It's when true integrity comes out. What are you like behind closed doors? If, it, if you know it, you'll show it, whether anyone's even around or not. As we've seen this week, society has turned its back on God, on God's word. Since August and and just Oregon, just diving deeper into this mandate that every citizen will pay for abortion on demand. And as we have three years in a row been bringing trying to bring petitions and bills before our state to say we don't want any of that. We're just met with opposition and, and even um, undermining every time. And as we've followed news feeds this week, we live in a country that absolutely hates each other. We've lost the culture war. We hate each other. Even Christians can't post something on Facebook without Christians just biting and devouring one another. Get over it, okay? We've lost the culture war. We are seeing how depraved the United States is. One nation under a bunch of gods. We've fallen to our own idolatry. God's not done with us. There's still a remnant. There's beautiful things that can still happen. But we are a fallen state. We have turned our back on God. Even people I've gone to Bible school with are atheists. They're agnostics. And when you share scripture with them, they turn and bitterly say, you have the wrong interpretation of that. And so I would say, well, then let's come back to rules of interpretation. Let's build the foundation and we'll see that God's word stands from Genesis to Revelation. Scripture is like an anachronism that people like to have that makes them feel comfortable when it works for them, but when it confronts them in their worldview, they rebel. This is even true in marriage and family and relationships. In 1973, Carl Rogers, who was this American psychologist, he really set the bar for a humanistic, man-centered approach to psychology, which means whatever feels good to man rather than whatever is pleasing and honorable and according to God's design in the word. Carl Rogers, though he has a wonderful last name, I must say, uh, wrote in his Alternatives to Marriage, he says, once society had turned its back on a divine mandate for life, it was left to go in other directions. And he described a few of them. So here are the other directions that a secular psychologist said happens when you turn your back on the divine mandate of the Bible. Living together without marriage. Living in communes. Not so common now as it was in the 70s. Although with these hipsters, we know it's just around the corner. Anyways, (laughs) extensive child care centers. Serial monogamy which is one divorce after another. The woman's liberation movement to establish the woman as a person in her own rights. New divorce laws that do away with the concept of guilt. 
These all, Rogers says, are groping towards some new form of man-woman relationships for the future. So a new form of man-woman relationships for the future that goes against the old form from the day of creation. That for thousands of years, whether it be Moses all the way up through the prophets, all the way up to Jesus himself, and then the apostles who said, Genesis works. Genesis is right. And then we, who are just so smart, with our little tablets and our smartphones and our computer machines, say, no, let's try something new. Let's try something new. And by the way, if it's new, it's not true. And so we've been on a downward decline ever since. And Paul told us that would happen. He told Timothy that in the pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 3, where he says, In the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrongs, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that not describe our society, our culture? And you know what? Our culture's corruption is matched by a confused church. It's sad when it's evident in the world and in the Mapes and the Rogers, this Rogers, we, me, us, we had dinner Friday night and we just sat on our couches discussing this very thing. How terrifying it is when this is evident in the church, this downward spiral. When, when we say the same thing Satan said in Genesis, did God really say, did God really say that? Oh, well, you know, I think that we can, um, we can, you know, I mean, if you think about the Ephesian culture and, you know, women weren't educated then, but now women are educated, so that must change everything, you know? And so let me go ahead and put my opinion and my rules in there rather than just, have you not read from the beginning, Jesus says? Have you not read from the beginning when Jesus discusses marriage and length of marriage? Have you not read from the beginning? Well, if he said it, that's surely not what he meant. And you know what the real issue in it all is? The authority of this book. The authority of this book. I really encourage you to get online and listen to our Equip series on the, the inerrancy and the authority of the scriptures. Or take the Equip class as we offer it next so that you can know why, why do we make such a big deal about this book? Well, we're going to get into it anyways. And, and Peter starts off with wives likewise. 1 Peter 3.1. <coughs> likewise. I kind of like that word, don't you? Likewise. My friend recently married into a family and her husband's last name is Likewise. Likewise, Lauren Likewise is now her name. I thought that was just like his cool Facebook name, like, ooh, Likewise, yeah. No, that's really just your name. Okay. Like what? Like 1 Peter chapter 2, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Like, we start a sentence with likewise. Yeah, you're going to want to find out what that's about. So just go back a little bit and you go to chapter 2, verse 18. Servants. Oh, so he's talking about wives and he says likewise and he goes back to servants. Peter, what are you doing? He always was old foot in the mouth Peter, wasn't he? He's about to step in it right now. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear or reverence, <coughs> not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. 
For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul, Wives, likewise. Okay? So when you kind of throw that worldview of, I'm not a doormat into your marriage counseling sessions and your worldview, just pull that rug out real quick. Pull that thought back out. And think of Jesus. Doormat? Literally, the language in the scriptures trampled over. We have an example set before us on how to suffer. We have an example set before us on how to submit because we're all called to submit, men and women alike. We all have roles in our lives that we are to submit to, to subordinate ourselves under. And even when it's harsh, even in a slave-master type relationship, Peter tells us, look at Jesus. When he was suffering, he didn't threaten back and you're going to get yours one day and revile back and threaten. No, he just submitted himself and trusted the Father who is able to judge righteously. Jesus is the example the New Living Translation says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. In the same way that employee must accept the authority of his employer, even when he's harsh, so too, remember, let go of your worldview, people. Let go of what you've watched on CNN or Fox News. Let go of what you've watched on Dr. Phil or Oprah or whatever. And just say, oh, man, let's, let's come to the, the breathed out word of God. God, when, when God, when the word speaks, God speaks. So let him speak. Let him speak regarding submission once more. I know we did like five weeks on submission. So by the way, you're not getting the whole thing today. Go back and listen, please. It's not fair to judge me by today or even yet last week. Or give me like 25 weeks, okay? Then, then judge. But... But you got to look at the whole context of a six-week series on submission that we did. And, and as we come back to what Peter would say about it, he speaks of in subjection or an affectionate submission to the will. Lay down your rights just like Jesus laid down his rights. And he said, even though he's totally equal to God the Father, totally equal in value and worth to God the Holy Spirit, he voluntarily subjected himself to the plan of the Father and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Wives, it's the same. Let those words come out of your mouth. It's the words of Jesus when, when you're dealing with your husband. Not your will, not my, oh, that's how you have been saying it. Not my will, but your, let it, let it, it's words of Jesus. Just let it flow out of your mouth and say it right. Don't say it how I just mixed it up. But there is a mutuality of submission. There is a level of husbands and wives submitting to one another. Just as we all submit to one another, there's a level of that in society. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7 says the husband needs to render the wife the affection due to her and likewise the wife to the husband. So there's mutual affection given to one another. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the wife, or rather the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do you see that mutual submission there? Do not deprive one another, 
except for with consent for a time, that you would give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and, and you can, that's another story. And so this is not to be submission in terms of value or worth, but rather in role and function. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, I want you to know, so we should sit up a little bit and be like, okay, so then tell me, the head of every man is Christ. Okay, so we're like, you know, we're like the Vietnam War guys that are out in the jungle and you kind of get spread out and this guy starts moving ahead of where he should be and this guy, and so, and then you have the lead guy that says, hey, fall back in line. Fall back in line. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, okay, so here's the line. Here's the military order. The head of man is Christ, okay? And then the, the head of woman is man, okay? And then the head of Christ is God. Oh, wait, so the God-man Jesus submits to somebody? And, and it's still cool? Yeah, he submits to God the Father, even though he's God. And, and there's this Trinity mystery going on. And yet in the mystery, you see, wow, the, the son submits to the father. He defers to the father. Every distinct relationship has particular roles and duties. Every relationship. I go out to the shotgun ranch and I, you know, get on, you know, Hershey and I'm riding along with Joe and my cinch is getting loose and I'm, you know. And, you know, and Joe says, hey, straighten your saddle up, boy. Weren't you raised on a ranch? And, okay, boss. Whoop, you know, get my saddle straight. And hey, stop picking your nose. We don't do that even though we're out on the farm. And I say, whoop, sorry, you know, my bad. But when I'm at the shotgun ranch, I submit to Joe. He's the boss. I had to go to the school this week and, and, and deal with a, a hard situation. When your little precious laner girls goes to the principal's office, you know, it's like, oh, there goes the pastor into the principal's office. And I went to Mr. McLean and I, and I, you know, I submitted to him and just had to humble ourselves before him and ask for forgiveness and, and just say, hey, you're the boss. You're the boss at Barnes Butte. And I go to the Teskies, you know, and I put the ear tag in the wrong ear and Sarah just goes, you're not too smart today, are you? You didn't, you didn't give me enough coffee today, you know? And she's like, got to cut that out, put it in the right ear, you know? And, and it's like, okay, I submit to Sarah. I submit to Sarah. I submit to the Teskies. We all submit to one another. Amen? There's different roles. Okay? And here we see that in marriage, there's a role. It doesn't mean servile bondage. The wife is not an object or a thing or a household good. That's not what Paul means. It speaks of role. And we all have that. Look in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. And so we submit to our government. Look at um, Luke chapter 7, verse 8. You have the centurion, a Roman soldier over a hundred men. And when he asked Jesus to heal his servant, he says, Hey, no, hold on. I'm a man placed under authority. I'm still a man. I'm a Roman soldier man. And he says, and yet... I am placed under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say go, one goes, I have another come and comes. And, and so I, I say do this and he does it, but I'm also that to somebody else. So Lord, you just speak the word and I know that my servant will be healed. First Peter chapter 2, 13, we're to subject or submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether kings or governors or laws we submit ourselves to these ordinances unless it causes us to disobey God, all right, or, or disobey the word of God. If it commands us to do something God forbids or if it forbids us to do something God commands. And so there is role in society. Anything that's going to work right has to have it. In Ephesians 5.33, the, the role is shown between husbands and wives. It's been said a respectful wife has a head of respect. She has a head of respect. So how do you think about your husband in your head? She has a heart of respect. How do you feel about your husband? What do you say about him? 
She has hands of respect. What do you do for your husband in serving? A disrespectful wife may be silent and may be compliant, or a disrespectful wife may be loud and contentious. Either way. Still, it's possible to disagree respectfully. To disagree without being disagreeable. And so, wives, as we kind of wrap up the word for, the, for you in this big series here, ahead of respect, how you think about your husband. Do you think about your husband in a hopeful way or a hopeless way? In a respectful way, even in your thoughts, or in a disrespectful way? And some wives might say, well, I never say it. But you know, God knows your heart. And we husbands can often tell just by looking at you how you think of us. Your change and your repentance begins in your mind. You have to think differently before you'll act differently. Thinking affects how you act and how you feel. And so if you're always thinking, he's an idiot. I have, could have done a lot better. I am much more smart and much more godly. It's true, you really usually are. If I were the head of the household, things would be better. You know you've thought it. If he would just do what I tell him, then he'd be a good leader. He's not very impressive. If I had it to do all over again, if I could have done it differently, I wouldn't have picked him. He can't keep up with me. He's not as smart. He's not as nice. He's not as fun. He's not as dependable. He's not as hardworking as me. I deserve better. It's really just tragic that he's the lesser. How do you think about your husband? Philippians tells us that whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is just and pure and lovely, whatever thing is good to report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's how we need to repent. We need to train our mind to start focusing on the good, right, noble, pure, praiseworthy things of, I was said we, but really you need to do it. Your husbands, not our husbands. I don't have one. Hopefully that doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> a great recommendation for wives is to keep a journal. I haven't given a ton of practical advice over this series. I've really just tried to keep it on look, at, look to Jesus. That is great advice. But a good practical thing to do is to keep a journal. You can keep it on your phone, on your notepad, or keep it on a notebook. Keep it somewhere separate. And as you think things about your husband, use these words that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Use those when you think of your husband and write those things down about him. And then in that moment, as you're writing it down, pray and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm seeing this in my husband. And then go and encourage your husband. One of the most powerful things a wife can do is to encourage her husband. Appreciate your husband. Send him a text in the middle of the day. Leave him a note on the counter. I was just praying for you and I just love you because of this. Last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, we were um, taking a nap and Titus came in from his nap, <clears throat> laid on our bed and uh, he was kind of being a toot, to be honest with you. A little fart, if you will. That's really, I knew that'd get you to laugh. Um, and, you know, Lindsay's like, hey, do you, you know, do you want to watch this show? No. You know, okay. You know, kind of joking, but kind of also still waking up, you know. And she said something, and he goes, no. And he took his foot, and he just brushed her eye with his sock. My wife had eye surgery two months ago and it basically 
messed up work that had been done on her eye. And immediately it was excruciating pain. Just she began like bawling in pain. And that set forth the evening of dropping kids off, going to Bend, going to a doctor, having him take off the damaged cells. Um, praise the Lord, she hadn't had LASIK or it would have just destroyed the surgery. This just, you just had to kind of scrape the damaged cells off and then in a couple days it'll be fine. And she is in excruciating pain today, so be praying for her. But I really wasn't doing anything that I don't think really many, any husband would do. Um, but I did take her and stop at Chinese food on the way home, which of course she loves. It's her favorite food. And uh, I'm sitting there mowing down, you know, and she's like, and, but she just reaches over and grabs my hand across the table and just starts weeping and just pouring out what a good husband I am. Just thank you and this and that. To be honest, Monday, we had a different conversation. <laughs> there was immediate repentance and forgiveness, but Monday was a hard, hard day. Just, yeah, I wish, yeah, you really need someone else to do a different 13-week marriage series for you. But praise the Lord, what God's doing in us is that there was a Friday for us. And that in that Friday, there was, there was sweet <clears throat> fellowship over half-eaten Chinese food. And, and that was encouraging to me. It's encouraging for you wives to reach across the dinner table and grab the hand and just say, thank you for this and for this, and just thank you. You might not even have much to think about. Just think about it anyways and be thankful for it. Remember that 2 Timothy end times verse we just read? In the end times, people will be unthankful. That's a sign of a wicked and perverse generation. We can find something to be thankful for. Encourage your husband. Well, he really doesn't do anything big. Then pick anything, okay? Start moving in that direction, will you? If all you ever do is show him his faults, failures, and flaws, he will think that either he's married his critic or his mother. And neither one leads to blissful romance. It will not motivate him to grow in godliness. You can't change him, but you can encourage him. Speak words of life to him. It means so much. When a wife encouraged. So how do you think about your husband? It will lead to a heart of respect. How do you feel about your husband? What do you say about him? Jesus says that out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. And so if there's disrespect in your heart, or in your head, it's going to go to your heart and it's going to come out your mouth. One preacher said, the truth is, you won't speak about your husband to the Lord the way you speak to your worst friend. So start praying to the Lord about your husband. You'll change your tone as you speak to the Lord because the Lord will say, now hold on a little minute, Missy. You forget that I know everything you do and think and feel. So how about you come back with a little bit of tone of humility? The angry, gossiping, busybody, bitter brigade sometimes called the women's prayer circle, <laughs> where we all pray for each other. No, you don't. You disrespect your husband and you call it prayer. You call it a prayer request so it seems holy while Satan is dancing. This preacher goes on to say, you should be praying more for your husband than you should be talking about your husband. Gossip is talking about someone instead of talking to someone. And so if you're talking to others, particularly women, instead of to your husband, you're guilty of gossip. If you're allowing them to talk negatively about their husbands, you're not encouraging them, you're not serving them, you're not helping them, you're joining them in sin. So what do you say about your husband? In his absence, in his presence, in the presence of your children, while they're in the presence of the Father? Do you say, he's an idiot? He's screwed up again. Why did I ever marry that guy? And learning from my mentors, here is what you are teaching your children. To dishonor, 
to disregard, to disrespect your father. You're training them and teaching them to dishonor the instructions of the Bible and you're separating them from their father, which leads to death. As we submit, as you submit to your husbands, Peter says that when you do so, even if some don't obey the Bible, they without a word will be won over by the conduct of their wives. Peter speaks of submission to your husband, even if he's not saved. And the biggest thing that you need to worry about is his eternal destiny. There are wives in this room with non-believing husbands. Peter is telling you to preach wordless sermons. Preach wordless sermons. Stop carting, nagging, complaining, preaching, and just live it. Live the gospel in front of him. Proverbs 11.22 tells us that a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, she's like a ring in a pig's snout. It's not very flattering. Proverbs also says, 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her own hands. This is a word to women to preach wordless sermons by conduct. You work so hard during the week to build up that house and just like, we just mess up, don't we? We need the Lord every second. But in one minute of the flesh, we can pull our whole house down. It's the three little pigs all over again. There you go. It's your pig, for the, pig sermon for the month. You know, it's ringing a pig's snout and three little pigs, the house coming, blowing down or whatever. You know, pulling it down with your own hands. Of course, that's foolish. Proverbs 9.13 says that a foolish or insolent woman is clamorous, which means she's turbulent and roaring. She's noisy like pots and pans banging together. She's simple, knowing nothing. She doesn't know how to fix her husband. Little word to men regarding this from the wisest man in the Bible, Proverbs 21.9. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. In other words, head to the attic, boys. Not your man cave, but uh, contentious. Contentious about what? Saying the things she always wants to change about you. Then Proverbs takes it a step further for the husbands. Now it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. So if you can still hear her in the attic, it's time to move to cactus country. This is the Bible. Proverbs 12, 14, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness to the bones. As you come back with this and this, and he needs to change this and that, you're shaming your husband. And by doing that, you're making him move further and further. Pretty soon he's got a man cave because he doesn't want you. Pretty soon he's not even at home. He's out in the wilderness. He's out at the bars. He's, out. he's not here because of this clamorous, contentious wife. And there's a word that you're pulling down your home and destroying your marriage. There's something in the sinful nature of a wife that wants to nag. And there's something in the sinful nature of a husband that wants to neglect and neither are good. Nagging and neglecting back and forth. There's no time for the chicken and the egg distinction, which came first, but you know, a spark leads to an explosion. But Peter just says, wives, without a word, you can win him. Of course, uh, an outgoing, fun, even noisy wife can have a quiet spirit that Peter speaks of here. It goes to speak towards the heart. And John Piper says, 
Peter wants the Christian woman, women to win their husbands by a life of reverence and purity expressed in a submissive attitude that honors him as the head of the home. He warns them not to preach at him that they may be one without a word. I like the amplified version of the Bible. It kind of brings some bang to the verses. And so the amplified of 1 Peter, uh, I believe this is chapter 2. Oh, no, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, I think. No verse on there, so I'm guessing. In like manner, you married women, be submissive to your own husbands. And then the amplified says, subordinate yourselves as being secondary to and, and dependent on them and adapt yourselves to them. So that even if any do not obey the word of God, they may be, may be won over, not by discussion, but by the godly lives of their wives. And verse 2 goes on to say in the, in the non-amplified, that when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, when these husbands are inspecting your innocence and your modestness, this conduct, the King James Version calls calls conduct a conversation. You're actually having a conversation with your husband through your conduct. It's accompanied with reverence or fear. And so let's go to the Amplified again, which is really good in discussing this. (laughs) When they observe the pure and modest way in which you conduct yourselves together with your reverence for your husband... You are to feel for him all that reverence includes to respect, to defer to, to revere him, to honor, esteem, appreciate, prize, and in the human sense, to adore him. That is to admire, praise, be devoted to, deeply love. And enjoy your husband. Wives, is that you? Does that speak of you? I mean, you got all what we've been discussing of reverence and, and deferring and revere and honor. But what about appreciate your husband? What about adore your husband? What about enjoy your husband? Goes on to say in verse 3 non-amplified, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on fine apparel. And so it speaks of adornment, how you dress, your makeup, your appearance. Now, some have tragically taken this verse and just totally twisted it to where women should never dress beautifully They should never, you know, have any attention drawn to them by beauty. They shouldn't wear beautiful clothes, jewelry, fix their hair, put on makeup. That is all really poor interpretation skills. In fact, the language actually says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. That's only outward. There ought to be another ornamenting going on. And so many wives in the secular world, they focus on the fleshly things and they focus on getting all beautiful out here when Peter's saying there's something even more important and it is inside. Don't let your crowning feature and your beauty be external. Don't let the beauty mark be on the outside. Let that mark be on the inside. It shouldn't be the beautiful thing about you, the rings that you wear and the style of your hair. None of these things are wrong. If we were to take this verse in a wooden way, it would be to say that a woman who shaves her hair is much more spiritual than a woman who has a long braid and hoop earrings. And actually the literal translation is, don't let your adornment be with apparel. And so if you were to take it in a wooden, literal reading without the rest of the scripture contextually, you'd say, don't wear clothes, basically. Okay, so you'd probably be missing something if that was your interpretation. 
Don't let it be merely external. It's nice that it's external. I love when my wife looks beautiful, which is all the time, of course. Especially Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays. Why? Because she goes to work. And she's like, looking good, you know, for the clients. I mean, it's like beautiful. It's beautiful, you know, when we're mowing the lawn and digging a trench for the underground dog fence, too. But it's, you know, as she takes consideration in beautifying herself, she's a beautiful woman, and I love that. J. Vernon McGee, who you'll hear on the radio at about 11 o'clock, if you turn on the radio, I think he's from like Oklahoma or something, sounds like my grandpa Buck. I did hear him say, he's famous for saying, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Now, just so you know what caliber of a pastor you have, I would never say that. But old McGee, you know, obviously had no discretion. Chapter 4, I mean verse 4. Rather, we'll just move right on from there so that nobody gets in trouble here. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Let the beauty be inside with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The hidden person of the heart. Man, we looked at the Proverbs about a loud and clamorous wife. In the Proverbs, these, these wise sayings for young men, they talk about even like adulterous women. They're just loud and they're just out there. And Peter speaks of just, man, there's a, there's a purity in this inward person of the heart. What I think Peter is doing is he's giving married women just another warning about how not to win their husbands. So don't do it by the nagging and the preaching and the complaining at him. But also, don't think that you can win him merely with trendy hairstyles or a better tan or beautiful jewelry or clinging robes. You might attract him to the bedroom, but you won't attract him to the Lord. If you want to win him to God, your adornment is going to have to be the new woman within who's born again in Christ Jesus and has been transformed as you have had your mind re renewed. The world can teach you how to win a man to yourself, but only the scripture can teach you how to win him to God. The wife's responsibility is not to make sure he hears what she believes, but to see how she believes. And that inner woman is incorruptible. It's an incorruptible. It's a quiet spirit which speaks of keeping your proper seat is the language. That you're still, you're undisturbed and you're undisturbed being. Matthew Henry wrote centuries ago, a meek and quiet spirit is a tractable, easy temper of mind, void of passion, pride, immoderate anger, rather discovering itself in quiet, obliging behavior towards husband. It's very precious in the sight of God. It's very valuable to God when wives, when women live such a life. And for husbands and for fathers, I have two little girls. I've got my little Laney girl, and I've got, who a week ago was four-tooth Tay-Tay. Now she's seven-tooth Tay-Tay. I don't know how that happened, but Tatum, so cute. My little girls love my girls. I mean, we know, right? If you have a boy and a girl, you got your little wrestling partner, your little, Arr! and then you got, you're like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I used to say, I used to say in the presence of Laney, she's got me wrapped around her finger. And then she, when she got old enough to get that, she'd, she's got me wrapped around her and she'd go. She'd hold up her finger. But we fathers and husbands, we need to begin commending our little beautiful girls for their inner loveliness. For that new woman that Christ has put in them. That's the emphasis that Peter has. It's what we should have. We'll have the worship team come up. 
There's all the difference in the world, wives, between making yourselves deliberately attractive and making yourself deliberately seductive. You women know the difference, and so do we men. Very quickly, wrapping up through verse 6, we have a cover girl in verse 2, but then we have the real model in verse 6. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And so what Peter is saying is, gals, get a mentor. Be discipled. Be discipled by the women of old in church history and get a book. Get an Elizabeth Elliot book and read about the wife, this missionary wife, whose husband was slaughtered by natives. Get, get into the history of these godly women and how they behaved and how they lived. Get, a, get the model, get the role model. And then in front of us, even in our church, we have women in Titus Chapter 2, it says that, that the older women ought to disciple the youngers, teaching them these very things. But isn't it interesting as we close that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is the example of a gentle and quiet, reverent, submissive spirit? There's a few things that are interesting about that. As the Lord told Abraham that he would have a son and have a child, Sarah didn't believe it. And so she offered Abraham Hagar, and they produced a child. Burka, burka, what? Yeah, it gets even more crazy, you know. And when the Lord himself comes and speaks about you're going to have a child, she laughs as she overhears it in the next tent. And the Lord says, hey, why did you laugh? And she goes, oh, I didn't laugh. And he goes, oh, but you did laugh. And she goes, whoops. Okay. Then you have Sarah she goes to a land that neither her nor her husband had ever known. So you have this awesome reverence, this submission of like, we're moving where? I don't know. God appeared to me in a dream. We're supposed to just pick up and go. Okay then. But she did it. And as they're traveling, they come to Egypt and Sarah was a hot mama, 90 years old, so beautiful that Abraham thought that Pharaoh was going to get eyes at her, googly eyes, and, and want to kill him for her. So he said, hey, let's lie and say, you're my sister. But we are brother and sister. Hey, that's neither here nor there. Just tell him. That's another thing that's like, Booker, what? Okay. So she submits and throws the sister story out rather than the wife story. What a horrible husband. It happens again. It happens again. This time they're with a Ahimelech. King is what it means. Same thing happens. They're going into the land. She's a little older, still beautiful. And he says, hey, tell him you're my sister so that he doesn't kill me. Both times, as Sarah submitted herself to her husband, even in these crazy stories, I've never had anything like this come across my counseling desk. Like, he was like, tell everyone you're my sister. And I was like, what? And he's like, just trust me on this one. Remember Sarah? Okay. But here's the story. And here's why Peter uses it. As she trusted the role and the order of things set up by God, she's trusting the Lord. She's submitting to the Lord that even when that guy that is put above her in this role is just going crazy, she trusts the Lord who calls her to submit, realizing he's going to stand before the Lord one day in judgment. The Lord calls me to trust him. And so when it comes down to marriage and there's those times when it's like, honey, we have to go this direction in our life. We've prayed about it. We've fasted about it. We're going, we're, we're in a little bit of a disagreement. One of us has to submit. And in this role, God's calling me to say as the leader, trust me, we've got to go this direction. 
then a submissive wife says, okay, I trust the Lord who's put you in this role over me. It's the same thing as we get new presidents. Do you remember the whole, he's not my president? He is. He kind of is. You might not like him and you might not like what he asks you to do, but you need to pray for him and give him honor. Sorry, that's what the Bible says. So as we close, you can put your things aside and close your Bible. All of this comes down to, is the Bible your authority? Do you trust God? I have said a whole lot of not politically correct things here today. And thanks for sitting through it, by the way. But I stand alone on the word of God. I answer to God. I have to submit myself to these words. And I do due diligent studying to make sure there's proper interpretation going into it. And so today, wives, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord who in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty and design said this is the role for the home? As we close, just just confess today, Lord, I trust you. I trust you have you've put this relationship together in a way that when lived out correctly, people are going to look at Rory and Lindsay Rogers and what they're really going to see is Jesus Christ laying down his life for Christians, for the church, and a church that in turn yields and submits to such a loving leader. Let's trust the Lord in that today. And let's cry out with repentant hearts, Lord, we have messed it all up. Our sin from birth up through stealing the cookies from the cookie jar, all the way up through middle school and rebellion and our dating relationships in high school that weren't honoring and immorality and sexual immorality there, all the way up through how we did it in, in, in college, even how our courtships and engagements were. Man, wherever we didn't do it God's way, let's come and let's repent today. And there's forgiveness. <clears throat> there's big talk right now as we talk about the shooting in Las Vegas this last week. And even many people who aren't Christians say, you know what, we've got to come to terms with there is evil in this world. There's, why would a guy do that? Why would a man just shoot innocent civilians at a concert? And even people who don't yet know Jesus, they've, they've come to realize there is evil in this world. And the Bible says that the same kernel of sin and evil that was in the man that shot those people in Las Vegas, it's the same kernel and sin that is in us that causes us to rebel against God, to hate our neighbor, to hate our brother, to, to be insubmissive to our husbands, to be rough to our wives, to say, you know what? Divorce is the way. I'll be happier. It's that same root. It's that same kernel of sin. And really we saw on Sunday just full born, full fruit of sin. But we see it too every time a divorce document is signed. Every time there's rebellion in our hearts. And so just right now, we just come before you, Lord, and we just say, if we disobey you, if we say my way is better than yours, I will not submit to my husband. Even you, God, don't know what I'm going through. Then, Lord, we are going down the same role as Adam and Eve in the garden eating the forbidden fruit 
as Cain killing his brother Abel with a rock in the field, as David choosing to commit adultery with Bathsheba on the rooftop of Jerusalem. And so, Lord, today we just say your word is truth. We say yes and amen to what you've called us to today. And we don't know exactly how it's going to work out in our homes, except that we trust you and we choose you. We choose life today. As wives, just right now where you're at, just choose. Lord, you're right, God. I want to just live respectfully towards my husband. I want to think respectful thoughts towards him. I want to pray respectful prayers about him. I want to be an encouragement to him. I want to win him, as Peter says, over, not with my, my preaching and my words, but with my conduct. And as you would say that today, just receive from the Lord power and strength to do so. Let's stand to get today and just wives, you can cry that out as we're singing this song. And husbands, there's been plenty for us to learn today as well, where we've fallen short of the glory we haven't given our wives much to even be able to write about in their journal. As loving husbands, we repent as well. And we say, Lord, change us. Conform us into the image of Christ as husbands and wives, as future husbands as wives, as failed husbands and failed wives. Lord, redeem marriage today at Calvary Chapel. In Jesus' name, let's sing together.